Before we start this podcast, I want to definitely remind you of a sponsor for Fresh of the Word, 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest. In a world of wrestling where there's hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads, don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. So if you'd like to discuss a possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or even Zubaz, then drop them a line at 20by20apparel.com. That's the number 20x, the number 20apparel.com. And also check out their enamel pin line. It's super cool. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bummy, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puffy. You know my grindin' shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier, and this is episode 186. And the guest for this episode is actor Keith Randolph-Smith, who currently plays Daub in the touring cast of August Wilson's Jitney, directed by Ruben Santiago Hudson. Jitney was the 2017 Tony Award winner for Best Revival of a Play. Set in the early 1970s, Jitney follows a group of men trying to hustle out a living by driving unlicensed cabs or jitneys. When the city threatens to shut them down, emotions flare and you see the fragility of their relationships. During our interview, Smith shared with us how he got cast as Daub, how this story still rings true today, his career as an actor, and obstacles that black communities still face. August Wilson's Jitney comes to the music hall in Detroit, 350 Madison Avenue, from November 12th to the 16th. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to broadwayindetroit.com. All right, let's get on to the interview with Keith Randolph-Smith. You're part of Jitney. How did you yeah. uh, get, a, get a part? Um, how did you uh, link up with uh, this production? Uh, well, I was in a cast that was, uh, we had done it on Broadway two years ago. And I was a part of that. Uh, comp- and this is the, the same production. So that's how I, I got involved with it. Uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson, I auditioned for it in New York, and uh, I had worked with Ruben uh, a number of times before uh, the, our director, and uh, he brought me in audition for this, and I was fortunate enough to get a part. What was it about this, uh, about um, Jitney, that really, you know, you connected with? You know, what, you know, what was it, what was it, what really drew you to this, uh, 
to this uh, revival of uh, Jitney? I just love the story and I love the characters and I love what Mr. Wilson is, uh, um, how he's uh, passing uh, and, and examining, passing on and examining culture as we know it, especially African-American culture and specifically in his city of uh, his home city of Pittsburgh. Yeah, Jitney is uh, set in the early 70s. And it's about this group of men trying to just, you know, get by, you know, driving these unlicensed cabs, you know, through the, through the backdrop of the story, you know, how does it, you know, sort of mimic, you know, what is going on in the world today? Is there any parallels that this uh, story can, you know, really parallel with what's going on in society? Well, gentrification in a, a lot of a major American cities and even smaller American cities where uh, longtime residents are uh, moving out because they can't afford the rents or the mortgages anymore. Um, and um, owners of um, property are raising rents to uh, exorbitant amounts. Um, and that's not just happening in Pittsburgh. That happens in New York. Uh, it happens in D.C. where we are. I assume when I get to Detroit that I'll find out that it happens there, too. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yes. Yes, it is. You know, and it's, it's sad because the people who live in certain places for a generation can't afford to live there, like in Harlem, uh, you know, long-time residents pay, uh, you know, affordable rents uh, or had been in their maybe rent-controlled apartments, but then uh, when people move out and they uh, do some um, refurbishing, that apartment that a person was living in that cost seven, 800 a month, they now raise it up to $4,000, $5,000 a month. And I'm like, well, who can afford that? Yeah. Most likely a, a, a working professional, um, but it's not going to be your your uh, postal employee or your civil servant. You know, it's going to be, and not knocking people who have well-paid jobs and good positions. You know, we all would hope that, you know, to have that in our lives, but it's uh, it's just sad for the people who have uh, committed to living in a certain area through good times and bad. You know, what is it about this story that, you know, differs from other story, other stories about gentrification or race within a city? You know, what makes this a special story? What makes is the specificity that August uses in the characters that I don't find them as caricatures all of these and it's um, it, it, it shows you examples of a community um, being innovative and creative and coming up with ways to make a living and it was by necessity, it was fueled by necessity. Maybe the yellow cabs wouldn't take people up to the Hill District in Pittsburgh because uh, they were afraid for whatever reason. Um, uh, and so you have private cars 
which is now our Lyfts and Ubers, <laughs> that would take you home after, after your restaurant shift is over at a downtown restaurant or when the uh, buses would stop riot, r- running, say, after 1 a.m. or uh, after your shift is over at the hospital, um, whatever it is. You know, uh, they provided a service for a community that was underserved. And um, that's what makes it specific. There's so many themes in the play that are very specific. Fathers and sons, that relationship. Young uh, a couple, young couple trying to figure out how we're going to live together and how we're going to make a life together with their young child. Um, uh, the... Uh, Urban renewal, which back in the day used to be called Negro removal, as a, also a subtitle uh, to people in the community, uh, where you would take down a whole block of houses. Maybe they were boarded up, but then you leave those lots empty for 10, 15, 20 years until they're worth a whole lot more because of a certain revitalization that's going on. Because you make services and then people will come. You put in a dry cleaner, you put in a laundromat, you put in a grocery store, uh, you put in a bookstore, and uh, you'll get more people to come by. You improve the transportation hubs and links. So he was uh, delving in all those different areas in this one story. And though it sounds like a lot, it's, it's well told. And uh, I think most people, when they come, they don't, see it as a, a a long play it actually goes quickly goes quickly by and there's something that you mentioned how like these unlicensed cabs are parallel to what you know our ubers and lifts are now and isn't it like it's so unfortunate that like there's these you know things that people do in in the cities in the inner cities just to survive and they might, you know, it, yes. it might be against the law to do so, but they do it to survive. But then later on, it gets commercialized and those people that originally started get pushed out of it. Sure. Absolutely. What you say is it, it rings true to my ears and my heart because I've seen it. Um, not necessarily experienced it firsthand by not being a driver, but. I could see it happening. Yeah, like right now, you, there's the big marijuana boom, but what you're, you right. know, you're seeing a specific type of person like reaping the huge rewards of that. Yeah, yeah, because you remember uh, it was illegal in all 50 states, and now it's legal in some states and, and not in some others. And so you think about all the uh, young women and men who've been incarcerated for that offense of uh, possessing, using, carrying uh, marijuana, and you go, wow, now it's not against the law? So should we let out the people who were arrested and put in, in, in jail and prison for marijuana out now? Right. Since it's not illegal? It's like, no, you got to go by the laws that were on the books at the time you, you were, uh, came in contact with the uh, legal system. And, yeah, it, <laughs> it's unfortunate, but and until we change laws, then we're going to have to deal with what's on the books now. Right. 
when it comes to uh, the character that you play in uh, Jitney, uh, you know, how did you prepare to sort of get into the character? Um, I did research. I've been in a number of August Wilson plays, so I'm very familiar with with Pittsburgh. I've been to Pittsburgh uh, to visit, to work. Uh, I was born and raised in Cleveland, so I've gone to Pittsburgh uh, to watch the Cleveland Browns and the Steelers play when I was a young kid. Uh, their baseball team uh, was one of my favorite teams as I was growing up as a little leaguer. Uh, I've read all, all of his other plays. I've been in some of the other plays. Um, I it, 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 with any play, I always you know do a little research. Thank God for the internet and uh, <laughs> computers of uh, fashions. Even though I was alive and uh, in 1977. Uh, and, uh, fashion, I looked up who was, uh, what were the number one music hits? So what was the music like? But that was, uh, when I was in consciousness, actually in 77, I was in the military. So, uh, that's very relatable to my character. I wasn't in the Korean war and I wasn't in, I was after the Vietnam war, but I, I did three years in the army. So, uh, my character and uh, myself have that in common. Um, uh, he's older than me, but, uh, I've been around enough family and friends and to know about the times that I weren't alive, say the fifties, the forties, the thirties, you know, and I re did some research on that about what was going on in the United States and with the, the wars that were happening, Korean war, world war two. And, um, you know, that kind of research, just a lot of knowledge about what was going on in Pittsburgh at the time. Right. You know, speaking of your history, you know, when did you uh, first sort of get the bug to want to be a performer and be a part of being performing arts? Well, it was after the Army. I did the Army from 76 through 79. Uh, I had gone to school before the Army, but I just wasn't interested in, in school as other people were, and I kind of had a little adventurous spirit. So uh, I decided to join the Army, and then after I got out, I went back to school. And while I was in school, I was a uh, mass communication journalism major at first. And I saw a play on campus, an audition trial, and I auditioned for it. And I had such a wonderful experience and felt a certain kind of kinship and home with the theater that I changed my major. And then I continued studied, studying in Cleveland. And then I, tra then I um, decided uh, to go to uh, audition for a conservatory in New York, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I went there and uh, that's, where um, I developed more so uh, my uh, my skills and uh, uh, my uh, process. Even though I had studied while I was in Cleveland, once I changed my major, I, I, I took a lot of acting classes uh, and all uh, scene, uh, scene design classes and work crew and learned about the theater. But then I realized I, th I thought I wanted to do this as a profession. So that's why I decided to audition for a conservatory in uh, New York. Was there anything that your time in the military 
helped you when, you know, joining the performing, you know, performing arts world? Yeah, there's a certain amount of discipline that's in the uh, military, and that's been helpful uh, in the way that I, my perspective about uh, the acting profession to have a certain level of professionalism and uh, uh, discipline, um, you know, uh, planning, being on time, attention to detail, doing what you say and saying, meaning what you say and, and saying what you mean, uh, communicating clearly, because uh, in the military you have to communicate clearly, uh, especially if you're uh, receiving orders or uh, taking, uh, giving orders. You, you, you can't meander. You have to speak directly to what it is the objective is, what it is the mission is. And it's the same in acting. You have a mission. That is the play. And how best do you tell this story? And I think it takes a certain amount of uh, dedication and uh, discipline and professionalism to bring that in front of an audience who is paying good money to come and uh, be a witness to uh, the writer's work. Right. And I've seen, you know, I see that you've... Uh... You appeared in um, some films like Malcolm X and Girl Six. Uh, you were on you yes. know, TV shows like Law and Order, Cosby, uh, New York Undercover. Yeah. You know, you know, how did you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, first land your, uh, you know, your first break to be in films or TV? You know, how did that come about? Um, via my agent, uh, I. Uh, after a few years after school, I, I got an agent, and the, your agent uh, finds uh, and, and searches out opportunities uh, and find and there's a thing that, that uh, they subscribe to, which is a, a breakdown of uh, all projects coming up and what they need and require to tell the story. And uh, your agent submits you for ones they think that are right for you. And uh, you go in and you do your best. You prepare uh, an audition. And uh, sometimes you're fortunate enough to get a role. <laughs> a lot of times you're not. Uh, uh, so I audition for a lot more roles than I get. So I, I see a lot of plays, uh, a lot of TV shows, a lot of movies. I went, oh, when I'm watching, I go, I auditioned for that, or <laughs> I auditioned for this. And I go, wow, you know, and I'm not alone. So you, mo- I mostly don't get this. If I get one out of every 30 auditions I go for, and I'm including commercials on TV, voiceover commercials on TV and radio, video games, movies, uh, industrial films, uh uh theater uh and uh some people might consider if it and in no other field is that considered successful <laughs> or working because if you if you were a baseball player and you hit one out you one hit out of thirty at bats they would probably say you're in a slump if you were a quarterback and you completed one pass out of 30, you'd definitely be riding the bench. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you were a basketball player and you made one field goal out of 30, you'd definitely be at the far end of the bench. <laughs> uh, but in acting, I, I'm, some people consider me a working actor that's successful and one out of 30, and I'm, I'm doing well. <laughs>
you know, how, how do you, uh, you know, with so many examples of, like you said, that one out of 30 is like, would be like failure or be in a slump, you know, how do you sort of reconcile in your mind that you're, you know, this is just how it is in the acting world? Um, I, because I have faith and I think a lot of artists have a lot of faith because they believe in something that they can't hold in their hand and they can't see. They believe it will come to fruition. I I always believe I'm going to get a job. I just don't know where it is and what it is, but I, I, I always feel that I'm going to work and, um, and the ones that I don't get, I kind of, um, in my mind go, well, they weren't for me. Uh, the ones that I get are for me. And, you know, you got to take in human error. You know, sometimes uh, maybe my agent sent me to something that they thought I would be perfect for, but after I read it and auditioned and I go, well, yeah, it wasn't really a great fit. It was okay fit. But the person that you see in the TV show, you go, oh, they were perfect for that role. I could see why they got it. And, um, and sometimes the casting people make an error. It's like you gave a great audition, you fit well in it, but they chose someone else for whatever the reason that is beyond your control. Could be nepotism. Could be I remind them of an ex that they had that they don't like. Uh, <laughs> it, it, there's so much beyond your control in what we do. So the only thing you can really do is uh, be on time and prepare and be prepared. And that's what I always, when I uh, talk to younger actors, especially in schools, I said, do these two things. They all, Cause everybody wants to boil things down to either in the numbers or easy to digest uh, tidbits of motivation. I said, be on time and be prepared. Be on time, be prepared. And if I was to put a third, uh, carry yourself professionally, even when you're a student, even when you're non-union, but there's a, a way of being that's professional, you know, which is uh, being patient, being kind. Uh, just because someone happens to be a, a production assistant doesn't mean you treat them lower than yourself or uh, not well. Just because someone answering a phone's at a casting director's office, because in a year or two, they're going to be the casting director. That PA is going to be directing their own film, you know. Uh, so you, yeah, you, you, you professionally means treat everyone the way you want to be treated. What were uh, some of your, you know, what are some moments with uh, of some roles that you had that were really stick out to you? What were some really positive moments in your career? Oh wow, this. There's so many, it's hard to, to boil them down into a, a, a short list. Uh, this one I'm on now playing dub in Jitney uh, as we do this national tour. This has been a, a, a chance to practice my craft and uh, learn about uh, myself and I get a chance to learn about audiences in different parts of the country, LA, San Diego, Seattle, Detroit, uh, Washington, DC. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, I played the son 
in Jitney when it was off Broadway. And so now I aged into a, a part that's one of the drivers. So playing the sun was a highlight for me in my life at the off-Broadway production of Jitney. And I also did it in London when we went to uh, London's National Theater playing the sun. Uh, those are, uh, were big highlights. I recently did a play in New York um, called Lockdown that dealt with uh, the prison uh, system and uh, about this guy had been on, uh, in prison for 46 years and was uh, continually denied uh, parole. And it dealt with, well, what do we do with the aging prison population? Do you keep denying a person parole when they're over t- a 60? Are they a threat to society after doing 46 years of being incarcerated? And uh, that well, that had a big effect on me, too. And um, uh, there's another play I did in Chicago last winter called How to Catch Creation by Christina Anderson that dealt with uh, just um, the whole science uh not necessarily the science, but the the process of creating, whether it's art, whether it's um, writing. And in my my character's uh, perspective, it was a guy who had uh, been wrongfully imprisoned, who got out and was single, but wanted to adopt a child. So that's uh, when you hear that, you kind of go, can that even happen? Can a single man who's been incarcerated over 20 years, can they adopt a child if they have the means? And so uh, that was his challenge. So I've been very blessed and fortunate in uh, what I've done as an actor to uh, play a number of different styles of plays, a number of different uh, sizes of houses, number of different actors. I've done my uh, share of Shakespeare and Chekhov, um, Ibsen, uh, Moliere, and uh, classically trained. And I uh, I just enjoy all the different uh, characters and styles of play that I've had an opportunity and I've been blessed to uh, be in. A lot of the roles that looks like in a lot of the things that you you found roles in are you know seem like very very important topics that are in these stories is that something that you you know are going towards even when you're you land that one in 30 you know are you you know specific mm-hmm. at going to, towards stories that have a good message and important lessons in it um I wish I could say it was that intentional. Uh, yes, as far as the choices of things when I do audition and do get an offer, yes. I um, I don't, I won't do something that I think is degrading to the spirit and soul, and not just of me, but of the audience. Uh, so in that since I have a certain kind of, I feel a certain kind of responsibility, but I usually go to the auditions that are presented to me. And I guess every blue moon, I'll actually hear about something and reach out 
to my agents and said, oh, I'd like to be considered for that. Are they seeing people for this part or has it been cast or are they just uh, looking for uh, star star name power or what's going on? But um, it's kind of a uh, it, it, it's it's almost like playing darts. You know, <laughs> you definitely want to hit the bulls bullseye, but you can get a high score close to the bullseye. Right. What you're trying to do is hit the board and not the wall. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned before that yeah. um, specifically with uh, Jitney, you've been able to really learn about yourself um, in many ways to mm-hmm. the different productions that you've been a part of. You know, what did you mean by that? You know, what yeah. are some things that you've learned about yourself? Um, I've learned just by portraying the character, uh, that, um, that I'm more patient than I thought I was because, uh, I, I look at how my character deals with other characters and I go, Oh yeah, I would do that. So <laughs> I've learned from my character and I also recognize some of myself in my character, which is in every character is always there's the merge of who the person is as written on the page and who you are. And usually those things come close together when you receive a part. It's rare that you get a part, or at least for me, that is totally out of your wheelhouse. It's like, I am nothing like this person, don't aspire to be anything like this person, never will be this person, um, my rhythm is different. My, um, my passions are different. And so in this respect, Dub, uh, has taught me about my craft, uh, timing, um, because there's a, a fair amount of things that are humorous in the play. And by w- getting an opportunity of doing it over and over and over again, you get to, um, um, you get to craft uh, your performance. And the only way you can do that is with the audience. And so I need their energy. We all need their energy. And now we know when some, you can feel when something's poignant or when something's humorous or when something's ironic. Though so you may feel you know it, it's not until the audience gets there and that interplay happens that you kind of learn more about the script and more about the character and in turn more about yourself. You know, with touring with Jitney, what have you learned about the audience and what do you hope the audience gets out of this story? I've learned that, uh, no matter where you go, well, we're in the United States and it's a national tour. You realize that, uh, uh, though everyone is specifically different, that we do have an American culture. So you'll find that things that are funny in D.C., well, we'll see in Detroit, whether they're the same funny in Detroit, whether they're the same funny in California and or Washington. Uh, What I hope they take away from it is that um, living is a challenge. Human being, a human being is a challenge. Life is a challenge, but it can be... um, uh, a fun ride and the way you find that uh, 
livability and fun is through relationships. And that's what this play is uh, based on, relationships. I mean, it has themes in it of forgiveness, uh, deceit, um, uh, responsibility, um, all the all the great themes of all great uh, stories and literature and theater and art and uh, music, painting. Uh, those are the things that where we find ourselves either looking through a window and observing and witnessing, bearing witness, or looking at a mirror and seeing ourselves reflected. Uh, and when I say that, I don't mean it too literally. When you look through the mirror, you don't have to see a, a black face to relate to it. If you're not of a, a African-American culture, because nothing uh, human is foreign, uh, you will relate. I mean, how many people have come up and said um, uh, uh, to us, it's like, oh, that's a relationship between the father and son. And it may be a female telling you that. She goes, that's me and my mom, or that's me and my dad. <laughs> or I know somebody, when they found out this information, that Booster finds out that they had that same reaction. Or uh, you see a young couple trying to work through things, and it's like, oh, wow, because then you realize it's about perspective. And it's how uh, two people see the same event or how they take it in. And you go, oh, well, neither one of them are wrong. They're actually both kind of right. So, damn, but that's the definition of tragedy, the collision of two rights. <laughs> and, uh, and so you get to see that. Both people are doing the things they think they should be doing for the right, what they consider the right reasons. But just because you're doing that doesn't mean you can't be at odds with the other person that you're in relation with. So it's, 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 it's the great themes, it's the big themes, but it's a very specific story. And I always find that what you find, when you find the universal is because you got really specific, you know, and the universal is in the specific. When it comes to the theme of relationships, and when you have these these themes that can be transferable between different types of people, is there also within that things that will specifically touch a a group of people, say the black community, that will be a little bit more specific to them in this story? Yes, um, as in any culture. Uh, there's certain um, benchmarks that when you hear them, when you see them, you recognize them uh, innately. And, and that could be every and any culture, Irish culture, Jewish culture, Greek culture, French culture, uh, 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 Japanese culture, Korean culture, Australian culture, whereas somebody would do something uh, – and you would go, I understand that. Like in some cultures, to point at someone is like giving somebody the finger in our culture. You don't point at people. That's like the evil spirit. So you go in some, at some cultures, uh, um, they don't necessarily shake hands and punt greeting. 
they meet foreheads. So this is very American in culture and very specifically African-American in culture. And so the African-American audience members uh, recognize certain things maybe a second quicker than somebody who's not in the culture. And whereas when it's in your culture, you kind of go, oh, I see why they do that. Well, yeah, they do that so they'll keep from crying. That's where the blues came from. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to sing about my wife leaving me, taking the kids, selling the house while I was on the road driving my tractor trailer. When I got home, there was another family living in the house, and I'm like, where's my wife and children? Oh, those people moved. I was only gone two weeks. It's like they knew her. Oh, my God. And so you write a song about it, and it's like, well, damn, that's a sad song. But it's got a really catchy melody and hook. Yeah, we have, you have to define that um, ironic or dark uh, humor in it to keep from crying. With this, you know, with this story that, you know, it was written by August Wilson, and then you have this production by uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson, what, um, how, how did they go about making these characters, you know, not be authentic and not diving into any sort of stereotypes or caricatures of what black culture is? Because August was a phenomenal writer, one of the best that America has ever produced. He's very specific. He uh, writes characters that uh, have their dignity intact, always with an objective in mind, always trying to do the right things, um, at least as far as their mind and heart goes. And so he doesn't um, uh, travel... Uh, uh, and tread in caricature because that's not what was interesting to him. He was a chronicler of his times, and when he was in Pittsburgh, he used to uh, write in coffee shops, uh, uh, maybe a bar, and he would listen to uh, people how they spoke. And so he wrote the way people actually speak. It doesn't when you hear it, it doesn't sound um, uh, out of tune or um, it. you sit there and go, that's what that person said. I believe what that person said. And it, 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 it feels um, it feels true. You know, he's um, he, he and he's even when someone is. You have value judgments as an audience member watching them. You go, oh, this person is a busybody and a nosy person. This person is mean. That's you labeling and judging them. Usually most people in life, I find, are trying to do the right thing. They're doing the best that they can do, uh, unless they're not. And that's usually, a lot of times it's easy to tell when somebody's trying not to do the best that they can do and if they're trying not to do the right thing. You go, oh, okay. Uh, but they may be, even when they're doing the wrong things, they may be doing it for what they think is the right reason. But you go, well, no, actually that's criminal and uh, you should be incarcerated. You know, I understand why you would, robbed the Federal Reserve Bank is because you 
don't have anywhere to live, you don't have any money, you want to help your mother. But have you ever tried to get a job? You're not going to rob the Federal Reserve Bank because that's just pretty much impossible. I'm going to go in Fort Knox and steal the gold. <laughs> yeah, you're going to go to jail for the rest of your life. That's not really going to happen. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, so, um, yeah, he doesn't He doesn't label them. He leaves that to the the people bearing witness who are sitting in the audience, you know. They're just people living their lives, being in relation, trying to do the best that they can do. And these people are always striving because he's not writing about the talented 10th. He's not writing about the 1%. He's writing about the working class people. And how, you know, how in 2019, you know, with the current revival of Jitney, do, you know, do you keep that authentic authenticity that August Wilson, you know, originally wrote for these characters? Is it just something that is just easy to do and it's just there in black and white on paper? You know, how do you keep that authenticity? I would say so. I, 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 he's such a phenomenal writer and this is, one of the first plays he wrote. He was a young writer when he wrote this originally. Uh, so it's the last one to get on Broadway. Uh, it was one of the first ones he wrote. Uh, he couldn't get it produced uh, on big major stages. He had some local productions in Pittsburgh back uh, in the early 90s. Uh, he, I think even as late uh, as uh, late 80s, 89, 9, uh, I mean, 79, 80, 81, 82. Uh, and then it got picked up for a, a production at the Pittsburgh Public Theater in 1996. Um, and then he did some, uh, he had done some rewriting to it, but he was also a more um, uh, accomplished and a, a, a renowned writer by then. So people were curious, well, let's read a, a young writer's play and see what he, because you can see some of the themes in the play and some of his uh, later works like Fences, uh, um, uh, Joe Turner's Come and Gone, uh, uh, Piano Lesson, you know. Uh, so, But it's, it's really there. It's really on the page. It's. Uh, you don't have to add a whole lot of hot sauce to this meal. You know, it's already tasty. Yeah. Right. And just kind of, uh, yeah, closing out this, um, you know, this interview, you know, when it comes to this story, you know, like what is, what's your favorite part about it? You know, what, what really kind of, you know, hits your heart about it? Well, uh, the father-son dynamic. That's uh, because I also had played the son uh, 20 years ago in another production. That has always been close to my heart. Uh, one of my favorite parts is Young Blood and Rena, the young couple who are trying to make a way. And everybody has been in. Uh, mo most people have been in relationships and trying to make it work when you want it to work, but you're having a little. Uh, challenges with uh, communication and intentionality. Right. Um, and then the whole thing of the gentrification and the urban renewal and uh, how that affects uh, our cities around the country. And um, I've seen it. 
and uh, that um, that also affects me because I, I I definitely get caught up in my feelings when I think about these men trying to uh, provide a service to the community, and yet uh, the city wants to tear down the place and not put anything. Not even they're not going to build any houses. They're not going to. You know, it's just going to sit there. I'm like, well, how does that help the community? This is my interview with Keith Randolph-Smith, who is currently playing Daub in the touring cast of August Wilson's Jitney. Like I said before, August Wilson's Jitney is coming to the Music Hall in Detroit, 350 Madison Avenue, from November 12th to the 16th. And to get more information and to purchase tickets, go to broadwayindetroit.com. More information and the, that link will be in the show notes for this episode at freshofthepodcast.com. And I also want to remind you of my two new podcasts that have launched. Uh, Breaking Records, it's all-encompassing music podcast. The first episode with Dia Frampton from the sister duo Meg and Dia is now up. And then also my Detroit music podcast, Renaissance Soul, with my guest Big Tone as we talk about his new album, big shoes that he did with dj house shoes that is up now so please go to freshthepodcast.com for more information about those podcasts and then also go to any of your streaming platforms and subscribe and rate especially on apple Podcasts. look for breaking records and renaissance soul i would love to build these up really quickly so please Subscribe, listen, rate, and review. Share on your social network. That would be awesome. And just another reminder, you can support the podcast via Patreon at patreon.com slash fresh the word. For as little as a dollar, you can uh, support everything that I'm trying to do, and I'm doing a lot here. And also, if you go to freshthepodcast.com and click on the support the podcast link at the top of those top of the window you will uh there'll be a bunch of uh ways that you can support fresh the word breaking records renaissance soul and all those all those information all that information will be in the show notes for the recent in the recent episodes and going forward supported so many people over the years so if you could just drop a dollar here and there that would be great all right thanks again for listening Goodbye and good night. Fresh is the word.